Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, November 24th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today, we'll be reading the following stories. Climate Change is a Health Issue by Will Matsuka. A Place Where Everybody's Welcome by Caitlin Rocket. Heart of Gold by Adam Perry. The Dead Won't Die by Tony Tresca. Bon Appetit by Michael J. Casey. Finding the Real Stuff by Ari Laveau. Rich in Whiskey by Nick Hutchinson. The Cannabis Chef by Will Brenza. Astrology by Rob Bresney. Climate change is a health issue. Medical professionals reflect on COP27 and how a changing climate is damaging health. By Will Matsuka. When Dr. J. Lemary gives presentations on climate and health, one of his slides has two pictures with an arrow between them, one with a polar bear and an iceberg, and another with a kid and an inhaler. This is the transition we're talking about, he says. Lemary, a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and co-founder of the university's climate and health program, sees the growing trend of climate change impacting human health. Lemary was part of a group from the University of Colorado Climate and Health Program that brought this narrative to the global climate negotiations at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, from November 6th to 18th. Our role at COP27 was essentially to build connectivity and awareness of the health implications of climate change, says Lemary, who has attended COP once before. The group was not part of the official negotiations, but held side events throughout the conference to inform the negotiations. Climate and health has received increased attention at the Global Climate Summit. Last year, COP26 was the first time the World Health Organization, WHO, hosted a WHO pavilion for daily health and climate programming. WHO predicts that between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause 250,000 additional deaths per year from malnutrition, malaria, and heat stress. The organization states that health shocks and stresses from climate change already push around 100 million people into poverty each year. Climate change is a health issue, first and foremost says Dr. Bhargavi Chekuri, a physician who works at the University of Colorado as an assistant professor of family medicine and attended the conference. 
health and climate change intersect in a variety of ways. Increasingly frequent extreme weather events, disruption of food systems, spread of diseases and mental health issues leading to illness and death. Climate change also interrupts social determinants of health, like housing, livelihoods, and access to health care. These impacts are disproportionately felt by the most vulnerable and disadvantaged. Locally, Lemary points toward a projected increase in extreme weather events, like wildfire and flooding, in Boulder County that will destroy homes, degrade air quality, and impact health. If nothing else, it just goes to show that we are all part of this world, and there's really no safe place, he says. When Shakuri started her residency in New Hampshire in 2013, she saw the impacts of climate change in the exam room. Patients with air quality-related issues or drought-related illnesses. Despite this, she felt like the impacts of climate change on health were never talked about in her medical training. It just felt like we weren't talking about the elephant in the room, which is a changing climate, she says. With COVID highlighting flaws in the public health system, Shakuri was further motivated to think about how to improve the system's capacity to respond to ongoing climate stressors. We just don't want to feel like we did during COVID, again, completely unprepared, right? We want to feel like we are equipped and ready to handle what's coming our way with the changing climate in terms of dealing with the health outcome. Shakuri and Lamary are pushing for health to be recognized as an integral part of how we think about climate change, so it is included in all mitigation, adaptation, and resilience strategies. Both spoke of feeling momentum building behind climate change's impact on health at the global stage. Lamary noticed health becoming more embedded into narratives at COP with more activism and attention in many different sectors devoted to health and health outcomes. Chekori says she sees successful mobilization from the health community to act on climate change, but she still needs to draw the connection between climate change and health for some people. It's not just related. It's the only reason any of us should care about climate change, she says. Nothing matters if you're not improving the health and well-being of people, preventing deaths, and preventing disease and harm to human beings. Lemary says it is also easier to convince constituents to act when the issue is framed around people, rather than if they talk about more abstract impacts like parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They can taste the air pollution now where they used to be not able to, says Chikuri. Air pollution and heat are also of growing concerns for Colin Toom, a climate and health strategist at Boulder County. Air pollution was the leading cause of death for our most vulnerable communities, including our historically and currently excluded communities, she says. We are very concerned about air pollution basically killing people and climate change making it worse. The American Lung Association gave Boulder County F grades for ozone and particulate pollution, stating, If you live in Boulder County, the air you breathe may put your health at risk. 
The county is developing a vulnerability mapping tool that overlays climate projections with demographic vulnerability factors to serve health and climate needs in the area. Along with a public-facing component, Toom hopes the tool will be used to inform policy decisions both at the county and state levels. Toom says the tool should be finished by the end of the year. Even though COP27 is an important venue to network with the health community, Lemary is still focused on how the conference impacts his work at home. He hopes the climate and health program at CU can lead the movement addressing climate change and its effects on health. I think healthcare professionals have a very unique position to lead and influence from healthcare, he says. We are trusted messengers and if we're not leaning in and affecting change, then I think we are missing a huge opportunity. A place where everybody is welcome. Christopher Wright melds painting and printmaking for a series of nostalgia-inducing works at BMOCA by Caitlin Rocket. Learning homesteading skills has become a part of Christopher Wright's artistic practice. It really lights up my brain from a creativity standpoint to be building a small family farm, the multimedia artist says over a Zoom call from his cabin in the San Luis Valley. It kind of goes hand in hand with my practice. The Denver native and his wife, fellow artist Corianne Wells, moved from the Mile High City to Southern Colorado during the pandemic to live more sustainably, but the move also gave the couple a chance to refocus on their individual artistic practices after a half dozen years running creative arts incubator Odessa. Wright says he and Wells loved showcasing local art and facilitating networking opportunities through Odessa's Santa Fe Street Gallery space, but juggling day jobs plus the gallery left little time for their own creativity. 2020 created an opportunity where we were like, this is wonderful, but there just needs to be more balance, Wright says. We just weren't in the studio, so that's what brought us here. In the slower pace of the SLV, Wright says he was able to focus on finishing what became the 16 works that now hang in the East Gallery of Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art through February 19th, 2023. Just as I am weaves together the disciplines of painting and printmaking to create narratives that evoke a sort of deja vu, like a memory you can't quite bring into focus, but the feelings are as clear as day. Full of family gatherings like birthday parties, church revivals, and backyard barbecues, it's tempting to see the collection of work in Just As I Am as snapshots from Wright's own life, but the truth is more nuanced. All of these scenes and compositions that I'm fleshing out in the work are things that have happened to me, whether it's a memory or an experience, but the people in the works themselves are not always what they seem or they might not always be who they think they are," Wright explains. I'm really playing with these figures as a way to communicate a larger story. I want that kind of ambiguity to create an opportunity for a viewer to imagine themselves in the scene or read into it in a way that maybe I didn't intend. 
Exhibition curator Pamela Meadows says it's this ambiguity that drew her to Wright's work. Even though I didn't know who the figures were, I didn't really know what the work was about per se. I just felt like he captured a feeling, Meadows says. And I kept commenting to him how I felt like I knew the space or I knew the people. And I kept chasing this feeling of comfort or peace looking at his work. But Wright keeps the viewer from sinking into pure nostalgia by printing machine diagrams over the subjects of his work, alluding to the internal work each of us undertakes to grow and thrive. In the piece Fire in My Bones, an adult woman sits at a kitchen table with a girl, the child leaning over to blow the candles out on a Nickelodeon orange cake. Both subjects are ensconced in mechanical diagrams of a combustion engine, the adult more so than the child. The reference to the engine is a kind of metaphor for the heart, Wright says. Both of those forms, the heart and the engine, have to do with timing, with rhythm, with maintenance or repair. I'm thinking about that all the time. How do we repair ourselves through time? How do we put the pieces back together? Wright and his wife have found repair in the constant vigilance of life on a ranch. I've got six chickens, two goats, two puppies, and one dog who thinks he's a puppy, Wright says with a laugh. Between that and doing soil regeneration, planting trees, planting grass, I stay pretty busy. We want to create a place where everybody's welcome to share this space, to be able to be together and break bread and pick fruits and vegetables from the garden and watch the sunset. Meadows argues that Wright creates a similar sense of welcoming in his art. I felt really emotionally invested in his work without really knowing a lot about it. I think that's something that not every artist can do. And he activates that seemingly so easily, Meadows says. He has this really quiet way of telling a vibrant story that I hope others get from this exhibition. On view, Christopher Wright, Just As I Am, Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, 1750 13th Street through February 19th, 2023. Heart of Gold. Jeremy Money channels the old masters of jazz and swing on Gold Hill Serenade. Jeremy Money is stuck in the past. Not his past, and not in a bad way. The 31-year-old Boulder native just loves jazz, and pretty much always has. My grandfather, at an early age, got me into swing music, which in my mind wasn't jazz, he says. According to jazz history, I would end up being wrong, and I would learn to, as many of us do, accept a lot of things that expand our horizons. Moni says, this education began at just two weeks old, during what would become a tradition of aimless, music-filled car rides with his grandfather. That was his sort of thing. We always had a close relationship, especially when I was young, he says. If something was going on, or even if it wasn't, we would drive around and just listen to all these old swing tapes he had. While his classmates at Boulder High may have idolized Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake, 
Moni was becoming an encyclopedia of jazz, with Django Reinhardt, Duke Ellington, Glenn Miller, and other greats as his pillars. Moni, who plays both saxophone and clarinet, cut his proverbial teeth at Boulder's now-defunct no-name bar, where, for many years, he would hold court on a weekly basis, with hours-long jazz jams and booze-fueled conversations on everything from his Norm MacDonald obsession to conspiracy theories. A lot of jazz musicians might flat their fifths, but others might drink them, Moni jokes. Moni's swinging new album, Gold Hill Serenade, might sound like the old-time jazz standards he grew up on, but it's really a collection of transporting, vintage-style originals. The album is inspired by one of the musicians' most beloved Colorado locales, the 200-population, 150-year-old town of Gold Hill, just a few miles above Boulder. Gold Hill is beautiful, he muses. There's something about the place. I've talked to people who live there, and it's, certainly these days, almost an unimaginable escape from reality. This guy I know grew up there, George, says it's like stepping back to the 1800s. You feel like you could walk down somewhere and put in a job at a mine and start digging. The supporting players rounding out Gold Hill Serenade are a who's who of local talent. Matt Cantor, who has played bass with Boulder area groups like Gasoline Lollipops, and The Widow's Bane, plays guitar on the album and has performed with Moni for a decade. Kevin Johnson appears on rhythm guitar, with Connor Hollingsworth on upright doghouse bass, and Raphael Castillo Halverson, another Boulder native, on trumpet. Moni is proud his band was able to nail the album's eight tracks with no technological bells or whistles. No instrument was plugged into any sort of amplifier. We just put a mic in front of you, and that's what you get, he says. We just pressed record. That's just the way we sound in the room. In addition to his prowess on the sax and clarinet, Moni writes endearing, old-timey lyrics. He sings them sweetly on Gold Hill Serenade, particularly the wistful Maxwell Pond and With You. Asked what inspires his lyrics, Moni points to spontaneity. You get a melody, and then you get a word fitting in there, and a story coming out, Moni explains. I don't know how I do it, but I sit there with rhyme dictionaries and see how it fits, and a story develops. Sometimes the melodies are more important than the lyrics. Despite his lyrical chops, Moni hopes the music on Gold Hill Serenade will speak for itself. The focus is really how the music sounds and how it makes you feel, he says. You can get lost when I stop singing and start playing the saxophone. I want it to be that you're not focused on anything. I'm actively not trying to make a statement. The only statement I'm trying to make is enjoy the music. Moni's whole vision of music is about letting go and slipping into a dream of New Orleans before Louis Armstrong left for Chicago, or New York City in the age of the Savoy and the Cotton Club. The record release party for Gold Hill Serenade will be held on Friday, November 25th, at the Gold Hill Inn, a place where time stops, and, especially because there's no self-service, live music becomes a thrill ride. The Dead Won't Die 
The Upstart Crow's anachronistic adaptation of Bury the Dead updates Irwin Shaw's classic anti-war play for 2022 by Tony Tresca. American playwright Irwin Shaw's 1936 anti-war play Bury the Dead was a prescient foreshadowing of World War II. It pointed out the absurdity of war through the lens of six soldiers who have been killed in battle but rise from the ground to resist the grave that has been dug for them. While the premise may sound bleak, Jim Hewn, director of the Upstart Crow's modernized version of Shaw's play, promises the production is both moving and satirical. I have at times referred to it as a zombie apocalypse meets Thornton Wilder's Our Town, because the dead come back to express how beautiful life is, says Hewn. The corpses are defending what they love about the earth, and explaining to the generals, who very much want the soldiers to give up and die, why they have a right to life. When Shaw first premiered the play, the losses from the first war were still fresh in the minds of Americans, and there was hesitancy to get involved in the conflicts in Europe. Although the United States ultimately chose to intervene in 1941, Shaw's play serves as a reminder to viewers of the human cost of war. Now, The Upstart Crow is set to premiere their updated version of Shaw's original script on November 25th at the Dairy Arts Center's Carson Theatre. Since 1980, The Crow, an ensemble community theatre company, has been performing classic, accessible theatre in the Boulder area. We started the organization because we loved classical theatre, says Kathy Reed one of the Crow's original members and an actor in Bury the Dead. It takes a lot of time and effort to put on a play. So when you do a classical play, it's nice to know you have something that you can perform for two or three weeks and never get tired of, because there's so much depth in the script. While Reed hasn't been in every production, she's been in over 70 plays with the organization over the past 40 years. The Crow's committed cast provides both on-stage talent and backstage assistance. While a few members hold degrees in theater, the majority of the actors are Boulder residents who want to create art in a community setting. Hewn, a theater instructor for middle and high schools, first appeared in The Crow's production of Romeo and Juliet about 15 years ago and has since directed and performed in a number of the company's shows. His first exposure to Bury the Dead was in 1969, when he played Private Henry Levy in his high school performance of the play. After doing Bury the Dead in high school, a couple of months later, I was sent off to the Navy, said Hewn. The play was incredibly meaningful back then to me. I loved this script and have wanted to direct it ever since. The producers at The Crow heard about Hewn's desire to stage the play and agreed to produce it. Hewn aimed to maintain the playwright's original intention to depict a cross-section of Americans affected by war, while also modernizing the play for contemporary audiences. We've embraced the idea of 2022 soldiers in the play, says Hewn. The modern army has women as privates, captains, and generals. In our production, one of the generals is a woman, 
The captain is a woman, the reporter is a woman, and there is a lesbian couple. The first stage direction in the script reads that the play is set during the second year of the war that is to begin tomorrow night. Hune saw this as an opportunity to speak to current concerns by setting the play in the present. But changing the dates in the script introduced several historical inconsistencies. Though they changed the dates to 2022, the script still refers to the Saturday Evening Post, uses a dial phone, and references the War Department, which dated the piece. We sort of just embrace the anachronisms, because the play is clearly future-looking, says Hune. Shaw's clearly saying war is always a problem, so we felt that having it slightly out of time would accurately portray Shaw's depiction of war. Actor Mark Bradford, who has performed with The Crow for 10 years, and portrays one of the soldiers in Bury the Dead, advises audiences to go in with as little background knowledge as possible. This is a show that kind of defies your expectations, says Bradford. You might expect something very specific if you just hear that it's an anti-war play, but it's not like polemics or anything like that. There are some very touching scenes, but there are also moments when there's a bunch of dark humor underlying it. You don't expect to be chuckling, but sometimes you are, while still being impacted by the play's underlying emotions. On stage, Bury the Dead, various times November 25th through December 4th, Dairy Arts Center, Carson Theater, 2590 Walnut Street, Boulder. Bon Appetit, Cannibals in Love and On the Run in Bones and All, by Michael J. Casey. It all starts so innocently, the invitation to a sleepover. The invited wants to go, but her father won't let her, not in a million years. He's the type who installed a barrel bolt on her bedroom door. He should have thought more about the window. The invited is Marin, Taylor Russell, an 18-year-old in desperate need of connection. She finds it, sort of, at the classmates' sleepover. Quiet pop music plays, girls paint their nails, it's all very woozy. Marin's classmate invites her under the coffee table, and the two girls snuggle close, their voices dropping low and intimate. The classmate shows off her freshly painted fingernails to Marin, Marin's eyes gloss over as she tenderly opens her mouth and draws the finger in. The image is soft and yellow and warm. It looks like love. Then Marin bites down, hard. Bones and All, the latest from Italian maestro Luca Guadagnino, spends its entire 130-minute runtime moving between tones with ease. Glowing nostalgia one second, grisly horror the next. Perfect for a coming-of-age story of cannibalistic lovers on the run. Marin's thirst for flesh is nothing new. Dad Andre Holland has kept the two of them on the move for years, in and out of rundown trailers and backwoods towns. But now Marin is legally an adult, and he's out. He cuts her loose and leaves a cassette tape, confession, and a couple of bucks. Dad doesn't know why Marin has peculiar feeding habits, but Mom might. 
So Marin hits the road and crosses paths with a couple more eaters, Mark Rylance and Michael Stuhlbarg, a poser, David Gordon Green, and Lee, Timothy Chalamet, a floppy-haired eater with a lot of brotherly guilt and some deep-cut knowledge of kiss. Chalamet is outstanding as Lee. His ability to remain silent and still, only to snap off lines like he stepped out of a screwball comedy, is half his charm. Sincerity is the other half. Not bad, considering he kills and consumes to get by. The source of the eater's hunger is never explained. At some points, screenwriter David Kaiganik, working from Camille DeAngelis' 2015 young adult novel, presents their appetite as a sexual metaphor, with talk of first times, the intimacy of drying off, and the phrase bones and all, i.e. the consumption of everything. But the presence of the poser suddenly shifts the cannibalism metaphor into something closer to addiction. Lee is called a junkie, and his wiry, grungy appearance isn't helping his case. None of the eaters in Bones and All look healthy. Human flesh must be lacking in nutrients, but never mind, the movie isn't remotely about that. It's about love and family and urges you can't quite suppress, and the ones that make you feel alive. It's sick and gross and oh-so-good. It's also really, really dirty. Set in the mid-1980s, Bones and All is not the slick and hip and kitschy 80s people are trying to recapture these days. Here, the world looks worn down and decaying. Maybe it always has been. On screen, Bones and All opens in theaters November 23rd. Finding the real stuff. Wild rice isn't actually rice. It's way more interesting. By Ari Laveau. I met the wild ricer behind a ski lodge near Lake Tahoe. We were there for a writing workshop, reading each other our work. He was and is a hunting guide in northern Wisconsin named Nick Vanderpuy. He read about a father and son team of Chippewa Indians from inner city Milwaukee and their trip to a lake to collect wild rice, using cedar ricing sticks to knock the seeds into their canoe. Wild rice isn't actually rice, but the kernel of a large aquatic grass native to the lake country of northern Minnesota and Wisconsin, extending into Canada. Like the people of that northern landscape, it's more rugged and earthy than its soft, domesticated counterpart. Wild rice has a nutty, tea-like flavor and a texture that pushes back when you chew. Soon after the workshop ended, Vanderpuy got his story picked up by NPR's All Things Considered. The piece I'd brought to the workshop, a passionate essay about Christmas tree farms, never went anywhere. But I hung on to the idea of real wild rice and started cooking it. Wild rice became a window into wild foods, an area I wanted to explore. I joined the rice hunters vicariously in their expeditions when I ate it. I thought about their efforts not only to collect, but process the rice, as the wild ricer described in Vanderpuy's radio story. The ricers get a fire going under a propped-up galvanized wash tub. They pitch in several handfuls of rice, taking turns stirring the seeds with wooden paddle. The smell of burning plants fills the camp. 
This process, called parching, slightly roasts the rice, preserving it, and loosens the husk from the wild rice kernels. Modern Wild Rice Hand-harvested wild rice is hard to find and expensive when you do. Farmers have figured out how to cultivate wild rice in patties, the same way real rice is grown. Today, almost all of the wild rice sold is patty-grown and machine-harvested, mostly in California. To find the real wild stuff, you need to find a ricer who is willing to sell you some. The wild rice community is divided over this domesticated wild rice. Vanderpoy says the patty-grown stuff isn't comparable to hand-gathered wild rice in terms of flavor, texture, and overall performance in the kitchen. As a seller of wild rice and a friend to many other sellers, he laments the fact that patty-grown rice has disrupted the market for the real stuff, which costs twice as much. Most people cook wild rice until it's soft enough to eat, but some prefer to soften it with an overnight soak. Hand-gathered wild rice tends to soften and cook more quickly than patty-grown wild rice. However long it takes to soften, soaking wild rice is worth a try. The flavor of soaked, uncooked wild rice is milder than that of cooked wild rice. You can wash down your chewy mouthfuls with sips of the earthy, fragrant soaking water, like swallowing a pristine lake in the middle of the forest. For extra vibrancy, add a handful of pomegranate seeds. The juice will burst out as you chew them with a hearty rice, adding tartness to every bite, like little sips of wine. If the soaking method fails to soften the rice enough, you can always cook it. For years, my go-to preparation was to mix it, still hot, with smashed garlic, sesame oil, and soy sauce, and garnish with chopped scallions. The heat of the rice cooks the garlic enough to remove the edge, for a flavor that's exciting and comforting. I also prepare a wild rice with mushroom dish I learned from a wild mushroom picker while camping near Montana's Blackfoot River. Eating wild foods in wild places is a special experience that's hard to replicate anywhere else. But even cooked indoors on a stovetop with domestic ingredients, this dish will channel the wild side of rice into your kitchen. Morel Camp Wild Rice 1 cup wild rice 2 tablespoons unsalted butter 2 tablespoons extra virgin olive oil 2 cloves of garlic, smashed 2 tablespoons pine nuts 2 cups chopped mushrooms, a mix of varieties is ideal 1 half teaspoon salt 1 quarter teaspoon freshly ground black pepper 1 half cup pomegranate seeds, serves 6 Prepare the rice the day before Add a cup of wild rice and 2 cups of water or stock to a pot with a tight-fitting lid. Soak overnight. Reserving some of the rice water, simmer rice on medium-low or bake at 350 degrees for 30 minutes. Check progress. If the liquid is nearly gone and the rice remains hard, add more liquid. Keep checking, adding more liquid when necessary, until the grains split, curl, and bloom like tiny brown and white flowers. Continue cooking until all moisture is gone, but don't allow the rice to dry out. 
Combine butter and olive oil in a large skillet or wok on medium heat. Add the pine nuts and mashed garlic. Cook just until they start to brown. Don't overbrown. If the pan gets too dry at any point, deglaze with reserved water from the rice. Add the mushrooms and stir. Season with the salt and pepper. When the fungus starts to brown and weep, add the cooked rice, stirring gently. Transfer the rice onto a large plate. Garnish with pomegranate seeds and keep more pomegranate seeds on hand to sprinkle on as a condiment. Rich in Whiskey From the Marshall Fire to the American Heart Foundation, Boulder Spirits Gives Back by Nick Hutchinson I tell people that we're rich in whiskey, but poor in cash, jokes Boulder Spirits, 5311 Western Ave, number 180, Boulder. Owner and founder, Alastair Brogan. Yet, the native Scotsman, who moved to Boulder full-time about ten years ago, isn't kidding around when it comes to giving back to the community that helps support his craft hooch. Brogan's growing whiskey company has donated to victims of the Marshall Fire as well as to charitable causes, including the American Heart Foundation. So far, our biggest effort has been for the victims of the fire, Brogan says. We got the fire chief in here with some of the firefighters and filled 500 bottles of whiskey with their assistance. We sold the bottles at an inflated price and were able to write a $40,000 check to the Boulder Community Foundation. We also did a thing with Von Miller, where he signed a few bottles, and we sold those off for charity. And we just raised money by auctioning off a full barrel of whiskey for the American Heart Foundation. The winning bid was $11,000. We love doing it, and people also get some whiskey for their money. Boulder Spirit's award-winning water of life is clearly something that discerning drinkers appreciate. Among other liquors, Brogan and company, who are proud to include a 1,000-gallon copper Forsyths still in their production arsenal, produce high malt bourbons and American single malt whiskies, using a distiller's mash of malted barley from Europe, aging their products in freshly charred American oak barrels for a minimum of three years. Understandably, the native Glaswegian is proud his independent Colorado operation. A true craft distillery makes their own product, he imparts in his Scottish burr. We're not owned or financed by a large organization, and we don't source our whiskey. We're a grain-to-glass operation. We also make a really good gin, but we're focused on the whiskey at this point, because I think that's where the company's future is. We're focused on American single malt whiskey, which is becoming an official whiskey category in the next few months as designated by the U.S. Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. It will be the first new category in 55 years. This helps with rules and regulations that protect producers so people can't undercut them. Boulder Spirits, which has been distilling since 2008, offers a few intriguing items for the holidays, including their popular Whiskey Adventure Kits, sample packs that include six 50ml bottles of the brown liquors and a new high-potency, 133.8 proof, cask-strength bourbon that was aged for more than five years. It's great whiskey, but it's like dynamite, Brogan warns with a chuckle.
The American palate loves sweetness because they were brought up on that. But Europeans like to taste the malted barley, which calms down that sweet a little bit and adds another flavor to the bourbon. The whiskey makers also offer a new line of bitters in partnership with their Boulder-based sister company, Cocktail Punk, including an old-fashioned syrup, ginger bitters, and elderberry bitters. With the holidays upon us, it's a good time to hunker down and enjoy what our local artisans provide. Maybe make a bourbon pecan pie, or savor a single malt by the fire as the snow blankets the ground. I've just come back from Scotland, and they already had Christmas decorations out, Brogan shares. We start counting down early over there. The Cannabis Chef Meet the Colorado cook bringing fine dining cannabis cuisine into the mainstream spotlight and your home by Will Brenza. It was New Year's Eve 2015. The ball hadn't dropped yet in New York, but in Colorado it was going down at Chef Jared Royalty Farina's house. The chef and his wife were throwing a dinner party with friends and cannabis industry entrepreneurs to celebrate the holiday. It was a party that would change Farina's life. He'd been in the dining industry all his life, he says, all over it, in the front of the house, in the back of the house, running catering companies, learning how to make pasta in Italy, and taking cooking classes in Paris. Food was always something Farina had a natural curiosity for, and cooking had always been one of his sharpest artistic talents. But he'd never thought to combine that with his other lifelong passion, until that New Year's party seven years ago. That was the first time we tried infused savory dishes, Farina says. He made a cannabis-encrusted prime rib, canna butter mashed potatoes, and an infused green bean casserole. It was a New Year's feast, and a highly potent one, according to Farina. Literally everything was infused. That was the night it all clicked in Farina's mind. A seed had been planted that would grow into a new career, his very own business, Dine with Royalty, a fine dining event company offering multi-course infused and non-infused dinner experiences. He's learned a lot about cooking with cannabis in the years since. He won High Times Top Cannabis Chef Award. He's competed on the Food Network's Beat Bobby Flay and Chopped 420, and was featured on NBC News. Not only has his technique evolved, but he's refined his Canna dining experience curations. That New Year's meal might have gotten you totally blasted, Farina admits. He was just starting out and learning how to best cook full meals infused with cannabis. Everyone at Farina's party loved it, he says. But for the average Joe, it might have been a heavy dose. For the dinners that we offer now, we do table-side infusions, Farina says. We cater to each and every person, offering low doses, medium doses, anywhere you want to get, basically, on a per-person, per-course basis. Chef Farina and his team will come to your Airbnb, your home, or your event space and provide a three to seven course infused fine dining experience. I basically make an infused olive oil that I can drop or squirt depending on the client, he says. That's something people are really into.
Don't let that fool you, though. Because while Chef Farina is sometimes just drizzling a couple of drops of cannabis-infused olive oil over the different courses on his menu, that's the bare minimum of his canna cuisine artistry. His favorite dish to make is his canna leaf pasta experience, which is far more involved and draws upon his Italian pasta-making education and heritage. We put fresh cannabis leaves inside of homemade pasta and then laminate it so you can see the leaves inside of the pasta dough, Farina says. We cut that into fettuccine and toss it in a beautiful herb sauce, garnished with grated cannabis over top. It's a full-on cannabis experience, Farina says. I don't think you can get that anywhere else. Other dishes on his menu include pomodoro with fresh vegetables in a homemade tomato sauce, a honey soy glazed salmon with garlic and lemon, roasted duck breast with rosemary and raspberry beurre blanc, or garlic herb crusted lamb chops. This list doesn't even touch his extensive appetizer and dessert offerings. Dine with Royalty also offers cooking classes for aspiring cannabis chefs who want to whip up their own culinary creations, infused or not. You can also visit the Dine with Royalty website and pursue his recipes page, where the chef shares some of his secrets and even has a video detailing how to make his butter oil infusions. Farina loves sharing his food. He loves cooking for parties of people that want to have a good time and who appreciate both cannabis and good food just as much as he does. It's one of the best parts of his job, he says. Food is my art form, Farina says. I can't draw and I can't paint, but I can create beautiful food on a plate, and it's something that I get to share with all these people that I get to meet. And it's a really great energized experience with cannabis and food. It's something that I love each and every day. Astrology by Rob Bresney Aries March 21st to April 19th Journalist Hadley Freeman interviewed Aries actor William Shatner when he was 90. She was surprised to find the man who had played Star Trek's Captain Kirk looked 30 years younger than his actual age. How do you account for your robustness? she asked him. I ride a lot of horses and I'm into the bewilderment of the world, said Shatner. I open my heart and head into the curiosity of how things work. I suggest you adopt Shatner's approach in the coming weeks. Be intoxicated with the emotional richness of mysteries and perplexities. Feel the joy of how unknowable and unpredictable everything is. Bask in the blessings of the beautiful and bountiful questions that life sends your way. Taurus, April 20th through May 20th. Of all the objects on earth, which is most likely to be carelessly cast away and turned into litter? Cigarette butts, of course. That's why an Indian entrepreneur named Naman Guotab is such a revolutionary. Thus far, he has recycled and transformed over 300 million butts into mosquito repellent, toys, keyrings, and compost, which he and his company have sold for over a million dollars. I predict that in the coming weeks, you will have a comparable genius for converting debris and scraps into useful, valuable stuff. You will be skilled at recycling dross. Meditate on how you might accomplish this metaphorically and psychologically. Gemini, 
May 21st through June 20th. Tips on how to be the best Gemini you can be in the coming weeks. 1. Think laterally, or in spirals rather than straight lines. 2. Gleefully solve problems in your daydreams. 3. Try not to hurt anyone accidentally. Maybe go overboard in being sensitive and kind. 4. Cultivate even more variety than usual in the influences you surround yourself with. 5. Speak the diplomatic truth to people who truly need to hear it. 6. Make creative use of your mostly hidden side. 7. Never let people figure you out completely. Cancer, June 21st to July 22nd. In my dream, I gathered with my five favorite astrologers to ruminate on your immediate future. After much discussion, we decided the following advice would be helpful for you in December. 1. Make the most useful and inspirational errors you've dared in a long time. 2. Try experiments that teach you interesting lessons, even if they aren't completely used successful. 3. Identify and honor the blessings in every mess. Leo, July 23rd to August 22nd. All possible feelings do not yet exist, writes Leo novelist Nicole Krauss in her book The History of Love. There are still those that lie beyond our capacity and our imagination. From time to time, when a piece of music no one has ever written, or something else impossible to predict, fathom, or yet describe takes place, a new feeling enters the world. And then, for the millionth time in the history of feeling, the heart surges and absorbs the impact. I suspect that some of these novel moods will soon be welling up in you, Leo. I'm confident your heart will absorb the influx with intelligence and fascination. Virgo, August 23rd to September 22nd. Virgo author Jeanette Winterson writes, I have always tried to make a home for myself, but I have not felt at home in myself. I have worked hard at being a hero in my own life, but every time I checked the register of displaced persons, I was still on it. I didn't know how to belong. Longing? Yes. Belonging? No. Let's unpack Winterson's complex testimony as it relates to you right now. I think you are closer than ever before to feeling at home in yourself. Maybe not perfectly so, but more than in the past. I also suspect you have a greater than usual capacity for belonging. That's why I invite you to be clear about what or whom you, be you want to belong to and what your belonging will be like. One more thing. You now have extraordinary power to learn more about what it means to be the hero of your own life. Libra, September 23rd to October 22nd. It's tempting for you to entertain balanced views about every subject. You might prefer to never come to definitive conclusions about anything, because it's so much more fun basking in the pretty glow of prismatic ambiguity. You love there being five sides to every story. I'm not here to scold you about this prelediction. As a person with three Libran planets in my chart, I understand the appeal of considering all options. But I will advise you to take a brief break from this tendency. If you avoid making decisions in the coming weeks, they will be made for you by others. I don't recommend that, so be proactive. Scorpio. October 23rd to November 21st. Scorpio poet David White makes the surprising statement that anger is the deepest form of compassion. What does he mean? As long as it doesn't result in violence, he says, anger is the purest form of care. 
The internal living flame of anger always illuminates what we belong to, what we wish to protect, and what we are willing to hazard ourselves for. Invoking White's definition, I will urge you to savor your anger in the coming days. I will invite you to honor and celebrate your anger, and use it to guide your constructive efforts to fix some problem or ease some hurt. Sagittarius, November 22nd to December 21st. Sagittarian comedian Margaret Cho dealt with floods of ignorant criticism while growing up. She testifies, being called ugly and fat and disgusting from the time I could barely understand what the words meant has scarred me so deep inside that I have learned to hunt, stalk, claim, own, and defend my own loveliness. You may not have ever experienced such extreme forms of disapproval, Sagittarius, but like all of us, you have on some occasions been berated or undervalued simply for being who you are. The good news is that the coming months will be a favorable time to do what Cho has done. Hunt, stalk, claim, own, and defend your own loveliness. It's time to intensify your efforts in this noble project. Capricorn, December 22nd to January 19th. The bad news. In 1998, Sean Hopwood was sentenced to 12 years in prison for committing bank robberies. The good news. While incarcerated, he studied law and helped a number of his fellow prisoners win their legal cases, including one heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. After his release, he became a full-fledged lawyer and is now a professor of law at Georgetown University. Your current trouble isn't anywhere as severe as Hopwood's was, Capricorn, but I expect your current kerfuffle could motivate you to accomplish a very fine redemption. Aquarius January 20th to February 18th. I stopped going to therapy because I knew my therapist was right and I wanted to keep being wrong, writes poet Clementine von Radix. I wanted to keep my bad habits like charms on a bracelet. I did not want to be brave. Dear Aquarius, I hope you will do the opposite of her in the coming weeks. You are, I suppose, very near to a major healing. You're on the verge of at least partially fixing a problem that has plagued you for a while. So please keep calling on whatever help you've been receiving. Maybe ask for even more support and inspiration from the influences that have been contributing to your slow, steady progress. Pisces, February 19th to March 20th. As you have roused your personal power to defeat your fears in the past, what methods and approaches have worked best for you? Are there brave people who have inspired you? Are there stories and symbols that have taught you useful tricks? I urge you to survey all you have learned about the art of summoning extra courage. I don't mean to imply that your challenges will be scarier or more daunting than usual. My point is that you will have unprecedented opportunities to create vigorous new trends in your life if you are as bold and audacious as you can be. Thank you again for joining us for today's edition of the Boulder Weekly, and happy Thanksgiving. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.